We are jumping back into Romans uh, this morning. We finished up chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, and so we're picking up, or we finished up chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago, and we are finishing up with chapter 7. Now, we don't have a bulletin this week, but I made up a little handout, and there's not much on it, okay? But I'm hoping and I, that this is going to help you get through what we're going to be talking about over the next hour. This comes from, uh, uh, actually from Dr. Sproul's uh, book on predestination that he wrote many, many years ago. But what it has to do with is this, is our, our disposition in regard to sin. And what you're going to find is this little graph or this little table puts it into four, in four different categories uh, as far as sin goes. First of all, uh, before the fall, and then, uh, then and this is what Paul has been studying, has been talking about here in these last few chapters of Romans. We've considered all of these things, the fall of Adam and Eve and deceive and how they represented us. And so when they fell, we fell right along with them. Uh, and we know that man's disposition to sin changed after the fall into sin. For, for Adam and Eve, when they were created, they had the ability uh, <clears throat> to not sin. We also know, how do we know that? We know that for practical reasons, and one of those is there was a time that they didn't. So we know that they had the ability not to sin, but we also know that they had the ability to sin. How do we know that? Because they did. Very, very clear. So, man fell into sin, and when that, that happened, man's disposition towards sin changed. We are a state now, before we come to faith in Christ, where we're able to sin and we're unable to not sin. In other words, sin is, has something to do with everything that the unconverted person does. We live in a day when I really think the church has the idea, in a general sense, that being converted to Christ is... Something that happens very often on the spur of the moment, just some decision that we make because we feel guilty at the time or, or this, that, or the other. But what I want to do is remind us this morning is that when we come to faith in Christ, there is a real change that takes place in us. It's not just external. There's something that happens inside. The Holy Spirit enlightens us. The Holy Spirit in awakens us. Our disposition to sin changes. Even though we're still able to sin because we do it, we are also able to not sin. There are times when we actively participate in deciding, making a decision not to sin. That is what sets us apart from everyone else. There is yet another change coming. That is what we call the glorified state. 
once we enter into the glorified state, and I would say that in a part that takes place at the time of our death, because if it were not true, then we would not be able to enter into the holy places, into the holy presence of God. We must be glorified to do that. But it would be, be brought to the fullness of, of everything only at the time of the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the new heavens uh, and the new earth where for the first time we will be unable to sin, period. We will never, ever sin again. So I wanted to bring that to your attention so you would understand something, and that is that, that when you become a believer, you're not the same person you were before. There's a real and legitimate change that takes place in you. Brought about by the Holy Spirit. It's not something you do. It's not something that you will. It is something that God does. It's not something you can do. Only He can. Paul is focused on the law. To some degree already. We're going to find that in chapter 7. And as we begin chapter 7. Just remember those two truths we've been talking about. And that is this. Is there's a sense in which as a believer. My sin died with Christ. I'm dead to my sin. My sin cannot kill me any longer. Christ took the burden of my sin upon himself. He paid the penalty for it. But at the same time, we know this is true, too, because it's, there is a vestige of sin still in us, and it's still active. Paul is focused really more on the first one of those truths up to this point, but as we get into chapter 7, he's going to be shifting to focus more on the second one. It's important that we always keep both of these truths in mind. There's a sense in which you are sinless at this point simply because christ took your sin upon him and it's not only the the sin that you have sinned up to this point or what you will do today but it's every sin that you've ever committed and every sin that you will ever commit all of it done with on the cross of christ but we know this we know that we still have the ability to sin because we do it. Some people want to make this to sound like, uh, like Christians are almost schizophrenics. They're dual personalities. But that is not a very good analogy of what we're talking about here. To be honest with you, there's not a good analogy to, as regard to what we're talking about here. It's something absolutely unique in all of existence. And I'm not going to try to give you some kind of an analogy because whatever I do will fall short of what the reality is. This is one of those very mysterious things of God. We believe it. We know it's true because God says it. But let me read uh, the first few verses of chapter 7 in Romans. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband, while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, 
she shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in a newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Do you not know, brethren? I hope you know these things. And let me say, as a Christian, it's not just a matter of knowing. It's knowing is practicing what you know. I mean, one of the things that the Holy Spirit imparts to us is knowledge and understanding of things. But it's not just head knowledge. It starts with a head maybe, but it always comes down to heart knowledge which in the end is far more important. In the early church, very often, Jesus, you see Jesus confronting the Pharisees who were the experts in the law. The Jewish people considered themselves to be the experts in the law of God. God gave them the law. It was their gift to them. They were those experts. They knew the law like no one else did. The problem is they had amplified the law and they had made up all kinds of laws to the point that they were strict legalists, that they believed that by night, it was just not just by keeping the law of God, but, pe- but keeping their laws by which you were made right with God. We read the Ten Commandments this morning. How'd you feel about those as we're going through there? Feel pretty good about yourself? When was the last time you read the Ten Commandments? If someone stopped you on the street and asked you, cold turkey, can you tell me what the Ten Commandments are? Could you do that? Sadly, there are a lot of church people today who could not. Very often when you're witnessing to people, you will will ask them basically, what does it take to be saved? And they'll say, well, keeping the law. And you'll say, well, do you know the law? Yeah, I know know the law. Do you know the Ten Commandments? Yep, I keep the Ten Commandments. Well, you can tell me, can you tell me what they are? And they can't even though they're claiming to keep them all. The law has many purposes. One of those things is this, is it reveals to us the character of God. So if you want to know what God looks like in character, look at his law. It's a reflection of him. It tells us what he disdains and it tells us what he loves. It also serves the purpose of restraining sin. Without the law, there probably would be a lot more sin than there is. But the the law has the ability or has a purpose in part of restraining sin. It tells us what pleases and what displeases God. In other words, it defines what sin is.
Paul's going to get to this pretty quickly here, and that is this. When it comes to believers, it does another thing that's really important. It convicts us. It convicts us of our own sin. Because when we read the law of God, we study the law of God, and, just, and we read this, this as well, that, that Jesus summarized those Ten Commandments in two commandments, and one of those is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and the other one is to love your neighbors yourself. If you practice those two, they cover the Ten Commandments. But let me ask you this, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and mind, and soul, and strength? Do you always treat your neighbor as you would like to be treated yourself? No. <laughs> no, no. But when we talk about it, when we read it, I would imagine that when we're reading the, the Ten Commandments this morning, that there was some sense of conviction that fell over everyone in this room. Maybe you were convicted of the fact that I haven't even thought about the Ten Commandments in quite a while. And we know this. We know that these commandments are, are, are much, very much deeper than they appear to be it's, at, at, just on the surface. Because at the Sermon on the Mount, remember this, Jesus is preaching to those legalists who were those who knew the law upside down and backwards. And they believed it was by their own keeping, their own doing of the law, that they made themselves right with God. Heaven forbid that there's a person in a Christian church today that believes that. Does that mean that the Ten Commandments are out the window? Obviously it doesn't at all. They still are our rule for life. The way that, that we need to be living our life in this world if we truly want to honor and please God. But as a believer, the law does not have the power over you it once had. The law is a burden that no person can bear. It is a weight that bears people down. There's only been one person who has ever kept the law of God perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the only one that's even come close to keeping it perfectly. Every person other than him that has ever attempted to keep the law of God has not kept it, and they, they violated it grossly, not just a little. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. It's true for every one of us. There are no exceptions to it. And we understand this, that law sometimes can be burdensome, Right? What about when you're driving down I-75 to get to Tampa and you only have an hour and 15 minutes to get there? What do you do? You get there late? Or you speed up a little bit? See, we look upon traffic laws as a burden. Sometimes we don't think about the fact that they are what they are for a good reason, and that is to help keep us safe. 
that very often we look upon even the littlest, teeniest, tiniest law as really being a burden placed upon us to restrict us in some way we don't want to be restricted. And if the civil laws of man do that, what do you think the law of God does? He says here, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So as long as we're living in this world, the law of God has jurisdiction over us. And it's true for every person. He uses an analogy here. And I'm going to try to summarize it in a way that kind of makes clear sense to all of us. He uses the example of a woman... She's bound by the law to her husband. While he's living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. We were that married woman bound under the law. But there is a sense in which we have now died to the law, too. Because we are married to another. I mean, the picture Paul is painting here is this. Is, 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 until you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are married to the law. You are under the bondage of the law. But we were released from that bondage. When we were wed to him. See, we should no longer see the law of God as a burden. As a matter of fact, we should see the law of God as something that we rejoice in and that we seek after. And we see the goodness and the rightness of it and we love it. I was reading this week it would be crazy for us not to, to be knowledgeable of the fact that the culture around us just seems to degrade more and more and more and more. Uh, marriage for so many people today is nothing at all like God has intended marriage to be. It doesn't look anything like many of us considered to be what marriage looks like. Since 1972, there's a particular magazine that once a year has done a survey well, psycholo uh, psychology today once a year for since 1972 they do a uh, social survey and one of the questions that they ask on that survey is have you cheated on your spouse within the last year so they're asking people that's one of the survey questions have you cheated on your spouse uh, over the last year 10% of married people 
admit that they have. And that's not have you cheated on your, your husband or your wife in, in, in the 40 years you've been married one time. This is have you done it in the last year. 10% of married people willingly admit that they have. And we know people. We know the actual number is probably way higher than that because even though some people have done that, they're not going to admit it on a piece of paper. This is what happens when people turn away from God's law. Adultery, which is one of those Ten Commandments, has become a misdemeanor. And in some people's law book, it's not even a crime any longer. At all. Since 1972, that percentage has been going up every year. It's what results when people forget, ignore, fail to practice what they ought to know, even apart from the Ten Commandments. Remember, we've said this all along as we're studying Romans, that there's a sense in which everyone has been given the law. Not written down in Ten Commandments and, and put in the Bible not available to everybody, but everyone knows this. That if we just do unto others as we would have them do unto us, we would be a blessing to everyone, and they would be a blessing to us. If you don't want to have adultery committed against you, then don't commit adultery against your husband or your wife. If you don't want people stealing from you, then don't steal from other people. You don't have to have the Bible to know that's right. It's just common sense. Do you see there's a sense in which God has written his law on our heart, in our mind? And what about this? We are no longer married to that law. We are married to another. We're married to Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. Do you understand that as Christians, every time we violate the law of God, we are committing adultery against him. Now, isn't that a sobering thing? That when we sin willingly and openly, and even if we're doing it unwillingly, and in the secret of the dark, We're committing adultery against Jesus Christ, our bride. Now, who's innocent? 
Seriously, who's in it? Who's here wants to raise their hand and say, I'm innocent of what you just said? Truth is, none of us are. I'm hoping that right now you understand what the conviction of sin is. And what does it do? What does it do for the believer? It drives us back to the cross. Over and over and over. We can't, we can't go to the cross too often. We can't go to it too many times. Jesus has lived for us. Jesus has died for us. He is our Savior. And we are married to him. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. God has his purposes in all things, and one of the purposes in what we're talking about here uh, is this. is that we who have been married to Christ now would bear fruit. That we would go out into the world and that the love of God would shine forth brightly from us and as even people saw it, they would be drawn to it. In verse 5, he mentions something that he, he, he already talked about in, in chapter 6 a number of times, and that is before, when you were, you, you were dead in your sins, then you used the members of your body, your tongue, your feet, your hands, your eyes, your brain, to sin. But as a believer, these things are to be dedicated to the Lord's dedicated to righteousness. You already mentioned that in verse 6. Verse 7 now, he's saying basically the same thing. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law we're at work in the members of our body to bear the fruit of death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that what for what reason that we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter of the law. As we said, the law of God is a burden that no person can bear. There are people who've tried. There are people who haven't tried at all. But the fact is this, is no one can bear it. No one can carry that burden. 
And yet that burden is what is required of every one of us. So how is it carried? Well, Christ. Christ has fulfilled it. Christ carries it for us. There's a sense in which we maybe before looked upon the law in a negative light, like we do traffic laws and things like that. They keep us from doing what we want to do. God just doesn't want me to have any fun, so he slapped all these laws on me. But as believers, we see the value, the real truth and the value of the law of God. We're no longer bound to keep it to the letter, but we are bound to keep it according to the Spirit. Verse 7, he comes to another one of those, those questions that he anticipates his audience is going to have as he's writing. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is he saying, is this law something bad? Don't get that out of what I just said. Because he knows some people are going to do that. They're going to jump to the conclusion. What he's saying is the law is just bad. How does he respond? May it never be. May it, God forbid, heaven forbid that anyone would conclude that about the place of the law of God in the life of believers. Like we said before, the law has particular purposes, and this is what Paul says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, that sin reveals to us what, or the law reveals to us what is sinful. We need it. Some people think the law is bad. Paul is saying here, no, 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 no. It is good. It is good, and, and for one of the main reasons is because it reveals to us the very character of God. What does God look like? What does God think? Come back next week. I might ask you if you know the Ten Commandments. If you can recite the Ten Commandments. You know, you have to do it in order. Let's get all ten of them. But even if that's too much, everyone in this room ought to be able to give us those two. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that too much for God to ask?
that we would know those things and that we would actively practice both of them. And he has given us so much. So is the law good? Yes. Yes. Do we need the law? Yes. Does the world need the law? 